Man, thank you guys. You can grab a seat. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, if uh, you're here with us this morning, you're a guest. There's lots of new faces this morning. We're thankful you're here. We're in the midst of a, a series called The Gathered Church, where we're talking about What is it that we do here on Sunday mornings as the church? We have an element in which the church comes together weekly to worship, to celebrate, to take of the Lord's communion, to baptize, to be family with one another. Uh, But then there's also a scattered reality to where the church lives out the gospel in the everyday life. And so the other six days of the week, the church goes and we live on mission in our city, around our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Places. And so we specifically have taken a few weeks to do a topical series called The Gathered Church, where we're talking about what things are essential to who we are and what we do. And, uh, and so if you're here this morning and you're a guest with us, you're kind of getting an inside look uh, behind the curtain of, of who we are and, and what we're about. And, uh, and maybe if anything this morning, as we talk on the topic of baptism, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of reference as I did last week that there is some controversy around baptism. There's some, some maybe misunderstandings of baptism, and, and we want to provide clarity to that. And most importantly, we hope you see that we're people that are about the Bible, and we want to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we're going to look at this from multiple different perspectives. But the big idea in all of this is that we're coming together today to worship Jesus, and behind this symbol of baptism is the work and good news that Jesus does. So if I can illustrate this in a way, it's Memorial Day weekend. One of the practices or rhythms that my family does every Memorial Day weekend, I haven't made a CrossFit reference in a few weeks, all right, is Memorial Day Murph. How many of you are familiar with Memorial Day Murph? Okay, some of you. Some of you don't want to think about Memorial Day Murph. Memorial Day Murph is a CrossFit workout, all right, that, that memorializes Michael Murphy, who lost his life in Afghanistan in 2005. And so there are these things in CrossFit called hero wads. And, and what they typically do is you come together, and in a very small way, you suffer as a way to remember the suffering that people experience to to purchase our freedom as American citizens. And so we do that in a way to remember. We do that in a way to honor. We do that in a way to point. Now, here's the thing. Here's Memorial Day Murph, in case you're interested in participating tomorrow. 10 a.m., our house. No kidding. If you want to come, come, participate, and do this with us. One-mile run. 100 pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 air squats, one-mile run. And you're like, why would you do that? Right? That sounds terrible. And there, there is no, I want you to see that in the, in the act, in the participation of Memorial Day Murph, we're, we're not buying anyone's freedom. We're not, we're not earning anyone's freedom. When we participate in this, we're basically pointing to and memorializing one who's already purchased our freedom. 
And in another way, what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea of baptism is, in baptism, we are not saved, but we're pointing to, it's symbolic of, it is a signpost towards one who has already purchased our freedom, has set us free, and has given us new life in Jesus. And so we participate in this act of baptism as a remembrance and as a telling of the story, reminding us of the good news of Jesus. And if you're here this morning, I don't care if you've been a part of our church for years or you're just showing up for the first time today, all of us need the good news of Jesus. And we need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. And so we're going to be reminded of the good news of Jesus through our discussion of baptism this morning. Now, I said out of the gates uh, that there are some different viewpoints on baptism. And I think it's important that we look back last week, and we didn't do this because we're really wise and we thought through this rhythm, but we thought through last week, and I go, last week was a picture. We come to the communion table. We take of, normally, when it's not COVID, we take of one loaf, we're, because we're one body. It's a, it's a picture of coming together. It's a picture of unity within the church. And so before we even talk to bap, about baptism today, I want to remind us that there are some very compelling arguments for different views on baptism. And but remind us that we have been united in Jesus Christ. There are people who believe differently than you about baptism, that we will be with them in heaven in glory one day. And so I I, I remind us that this morning so that we would be a little bit open-minded to just hear from other perspectives. All right, you ready to participate? All right, so we don't do this normally if you're brand new with us today and you're like, man, this is very intrusive. but we need participation. And, and let me say that out of the gates, there are going to be people that raise their hands on each one of these categories. Are you ready? One, how many of you in this room were baptized as an infant? Okay. Lots of hands. Baptized as an infant. Awesome. How many of you were baptized as adults? Okay. Great. How many of you were baptized both? You were baptized as an infant and also baptized as an adult. Yep, there's, there's hands. And you're like, well, that's confusing already, right? How many of you were baptized in traditions that believed you were baptized so that you must may be saved? How many of you were baptized in that type of tradition? Okay. How many of you would be honest and, and I know there's kids in the room that will participate. How many of you have not been baptized? And you'd be honest about that and raise your hand. Awesome. How many of you have been baptized ever? Raise your hands. All right. So what's going on here? Right? Like there, there, there's a lot of, of differences in understanding and understanding. And how do we make sense of this all? And this is where, again, I I want us to hold our view and our perspective with humility. At the end of today, the hope and desire is that all of us would be at a place where we show our gratitude for God's grace. 
that we show our, our gratitude and thankfulness for the kindness that He has offered us Himself. His body was broken for us. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that we may be drawn near, so that we may be made clean, so that we may be made new. And symbolically, we, we show that with baptism. So, let me share a little bit about mine and my wife's stories with baptism. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and so my family uh, participated in the Catholic tradition. Uh, My dad grew up Catholic, and so all throughout my childhood, I would say we were very religious, but lacked relationship. And what I mean by that is we participated in religious activity, but it wasn't until much later in my life that I came to a clear understanding of who Jesus is and really desiring to have relationship with Jesus. So I was baptized as an infant, a few days old, in the Catholic church. I can't necessarily say that I grew up personally knowing about the good news of Jesus. I I grew up knowing that there was a God. I grew up knowing that there was a creator. I grew up knowing that there has to be much more about why God has me here and my purpose in life, but I had no idea what that was, and I had no understanding of my identity in Jesus Christ until much later in life. And so when I was 18 years old, I was at a summer camp, and it was there that the pastor was teaching the book of 1 John and, and talking through these evidences of a Christian. And as I began to recount my own life, I realized that none of those things were true about me. And what I mean by that is there was no fruit in my life that gave evidence of the fact that Christ has changed me. So it was in that moment that that I realized I needed to be changed. I needed salvation. And I remember that evening going forward to my church, and I had no idea what I was asking or no idea what I was stepping into. And I'm like, hey, what you talked about is not true of me. And the person there shared the good news of Jesus with me, and my life has forever been changed. It was in a moment. There was a moment where I had no idea what Jesus had done for me, and in an instant, I realized the good news of Jesus, and I respond. And that rhythm we see all throughout the New Testament over and over and over again, and we're going to look at those references here in just a few minutes. But my wife's story is much different. My wife grew up hearing about Jesus. My wife grew up in a family that had relationship with Jesus. My wife grew up memorizing scriptures and the truth of God's word and knowing the good news of Jesus. And if you were to ask my wife, she would say, I don't necessarily remember a time. I I really feel like I grew up always understanding who Jesus was. And I believe that if you ask my kids that, my kids would tell you the very same that they grew up understanding who Jesus was. And Amber was baptized at a very young age. Now, I tell you these stories because there's lots of different perspectives. I was reading this book this week, 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. And in it, there's some great questions or problems. 
It says, I was baptized as an infant, which was meaningless to me. But when I heard the gospel and trusted Christ for salvation, I was baptized as a disciple, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Next person, I was baptized as a believer, which was very meaningful to me, but as I study infant baptism, I'm convinced that when we have kids, we'll baptize them because they belong in the covenant community with us. What happens to unbaptized infants? Though I was baptized as a believer, I was not walking with Christ for some time until I recently rededicated my life to Him, and I'd like to be rebaptized to commemorate this. I was baptized at eight because my parents encouraged me to be baptized, but now I'm not sure that I was a Christian then. Now that I believe the gospel and I'm sure of being Christ's disciple, should I be baptized or rebaptized, or should I do nothing? And we can go on and on, and what I love about this is this illustrates some of the, the real-life functionality of how baptism takes place and the life change. And what I see in all of this is God meets us in all different types of ways. And God works in our lives in many different ways. And, and how many of us come to faith in Jesus and belief in Jesus is, is unique amongst all of us. And so it requires some, some really navigating of, of how and, and why and what is the symbolic understanding of baptism. And so in the next few minutes, that's what I'm going to do, my best job to help answer some of these questions. And there's no way we can do this topic justice in 35 minutes, 40 minutes, however long it takes me. Uh, there, there's no way. Books have been written about this. But I, w I will move us at the end of this morning to remember, which is the very point of what I want to talk about in baptism. We may ask, why in the world is that, like, where, where did, did the origin, where did baptism start as a normal practice in church life? And so, just, last, just like last week, I gave you four Ps. I'm giving you the same four the Ps this week, right? Alliteration. Why is it a priority? Why is baptism a priority? Where did baptism start? And in our passage in Matthew chapter 3, we read the story of John as the forerunner of Jesus, that John was out preaching and baptizing people to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it was a baptism of repentance. Now, John the Baptist is baptizing, and you might wonder, won't people think that's strange? Like if you were just walking through the streets and you saw someone holding someone underwater, you would probably be concerned and you'd probably call the police, right? And you're like, that's, that's strange. That's odd. Like why in the world would this be a practice? But yet it says in the text that Pharisees and Sadducees, they look upon this baptism of John and they, they come to be baptized too. And so in some ways, it was a familiar practice. Now, for us to understand how is this familiar, we have to look back at the Old Testament religious laws surrounding impurity. That there would be a cleansing that would happen. There would be an immersion that would happen. That for someone to go in and to worship in the temple, one would have to be cleansed. And so there would be a washing or a sprinkling or an immersion. They would literally, as a symbolic way of cleansing impurity, they would be immersed. They would be washed. And 
what would happen is New Testament is going to hijack this picture as a way of symbolically showing that Jesus washes away sin. Now, as we talked about, I want to be very clear that the power is not in the water. The power is in the blood of Jesus. What changes us, what cleanses us is the blood, not the water. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was riding in the car with my daughter, and we're country music fans. I like country music. Takes me back to Texas roots, right? And we're listening to a song by Carrie Underwood, all right? And in this song, Carrie Underwood says, and now I'm changed, and now I'm stronger, there must be something in the water. There must be something in the water. And my daughter, she was probably only five or six at the time from the back seat, and she goes, Dad, it wasn't the water. (laughs) And I'm like, you're right. Miss Underwood has it wrong. There's nothing in the water that cleanses us. And a lot of times when we talk about baptism, I say, there's an old hot water heater in the back room here that we filled this up with, and this isn't holy water. This isn't water from the Jordan River. This is tap water right here from Salt Lake City Municipal, all right? There's nothing magical about this water. It's about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus changes us. And so, what we see is, is that there was this symbolic act of cleansing that was directly taken from Old Testament law, that that they would be cleansed from impurity, and that this would be a picture and a sign that, that people would come, and that they would literally come and be immersed, be washed in the good news of Jesus, and that it was a a sign and a symbol of their cleansing that Jesus provided, which is basically, we call this a sacrament, and sacrament is just a sign. It's something that points to something else. And so, this is the origin, and we see at the end of that text that, that Jesus endorsed that because Jesus came and was baptized by John. And Jesus comes, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, it says they were coming, and they wanted to be baptized too. And John tells them, hey, hold up a second. And they're like, well, we have Abraham as our father. And he basically says, it doesn't really matter who your daddy is. It doesn't really matter who your mom or dad is. There's a sense of that not only, and they're like, we've been circumcised, and we're going to talk about that weird word to throw around on Memorial Day, right? But they're like, we've been circumcised. The Old Testament sign of being in the covenant community, we, we have that. Our father is Abraham, and, and, and he ultimately says, it doesn't matter who your dad is, there needs to be circumcision of heart. There needs to be, there's an, a personal recognition of what you're doing. It doesn't matter who your dad is. It doesn't matter the family you came from. And we say that all the time. You can be raised by very godly parents who have the best intentions for you and your children not follow in the covenant community. You can be like me whose parents initially did not know the good news of Jesus and didn't teach me and didn't pass that down to me, but eventually would come to know that on their own. But yet, God's grace in my life that God would meet me 
in a radical way and transform me and change my life. Amazing. And ultimately, there's a sense of going, what a blessing it is to grow up in a family that teaches that. But even more, what good news that God meets us each individually, and that there is a moment where each of us come to personal saving faith and recognition, where we own our faith for ourselves and believe what we're doing in baptism, that that it is Jesus who sets us free, that it is Jesus who gives us new life, that it is Jesus who promises a day of resurrection. So, we see this. This is kind of the, the intro in the sense of like, this is where we get to these patterns. Now, those who believe in infant baptism, and you're like, where in the world do you get this? This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Brief history lesson. I know it's summer, and you're like, dude, we're out of school, right? All right, we're going back for just a bit. Genesis chapter 15, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, God says, as a sign of that covenant, you are to circumcise. You are to, there is is a circumcision that takes place as a sign, as a symbol of that covenant. You're like, well, that's kind of a weird sign. I get it. But this was the symbol that God chose to use as a symbol of them coming into covenant community. They were in this community. Now, what do we know about Matthew 3 that I just read? Just because you might be circumcised and you're in covenant, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have circumcision of heart. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16, it tells us in in this passage, do we have that on the screen? Deuteronomy 10 16, I don't think we do. It says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And so it's this discussion of not only do you need to be circumcised as an infant, but there also needs to be circumcision of heart. There needs to be a a, a change in your life. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 through 12, it says that circumcision needs to take place One, not by human hands. What does that mean? That there needs to literally be a change of heart that none of us can do. That there is a work that needs to happen in a person that none of us are capable of doing. That we need the power of God to move and to change us and to transform us and to cut away and to remove things that are not of him and give us new life in Jesus. There needs to be a circumcision of heart. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament this idea of circumcision continuing forth. Now, just because someone was circumcised physically, they needed to be circumcised spiritually. That's what John is telling the Pharisees and Sadducees and why they can't come and participate in this baptism. And he's withholding it from them like, hey, let's get this straight before you move forward. And we see that as it moves into the New Testament, We never hear this picture of doing away with this idea of entering into the covenant community through circumcision. And so those who believe in infant baptism simply believe that baptism took the place of circumcision. So all of those who participated in infant baptism, not for saving purposes, but in hopes that one day that there would be true circumcision of heart, would be baptized in a way that the Bible is consistent with the Bible. Now, that practice, interesting enough, 
we, we don't see that practice carried out in the New Testament. And that's the challenge. We have no New Testament references. We have descriptions of households being baptized, but we have no clear picture of a single infant being baptized. And I'll, I'll get to this a little more when I talk about people. But this is kind of the origins, and those who believe in infant baptism would go back and say that there is a continuation from the Old Testament into the New, that circumcision would continue, and that in the same way as Genesis 17 describes, that a child would be, be circumcised within eight days, that a child should be baptized within those early days of birth as a way of them entering into the covenant family but doesn't necessarily mean they're a part of the elect because there hasn't yet been circumcision of heart. So that baptism still does not save in the same way that an adult baptism doesn't save. Let's move on. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus commanded us, what? To go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so here he commands us to be a part of the mission of God and baptize. And so we, to be a fruitful, faithful, obedient church, we should frequently be celebrating baptism as a church. And so if you've been with us any length of time, you've probably experienced that with us, that you've been here, you've been present, and we've been able to experience baptism. And so, this is where we see kind of this precedent set throughout Scripture, um, this, this idea of baptism. Now, let's talk about the purposes of baptism. What, why, why do we do it? I know we've talked about this a lot, but initially, baptism is a symbol. And, and it's easy at times to worship and celebrate the symbol but let me show you in some ways how foolish that is. I, I wear a symbol. I wear this ring. It's, I wear this ring as a picture of the covenant I made with my wife. And so we are married. Now, if I take this off, I'm still married, right? If I come and put this on your hand, guys, no, you're not married to my wife. No way, right? She's mine. It holds no significance. It's just a symbol. Now, if I were to get married, and I'd be like, this is what I'm talking about right here, right? Like, this is so good. And like, dude, you're missing the point, right? What's so good is the relationship that I have with my wife, not the symbol. Baptism is very much the same in the sense of what we're celebrating, and in some ways, we can overemphasize baptism that we make that such the point that no one's celebrating because they got wet. No one's celebrating because they did this awkward ceremony where they came in front of people and got drenched. They're celebrating the fact that Jesus made them clean. And that in the same way that they came up out of the water, that Jesus has resurrected their life from the grave, that they are no longer a, a slave to sin, but they have been raised in Christ, given new life 
to live for him. It's a beautiful symbol. That's why a lot of times we read Romans 6, 3, and 4. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus and were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, When I read Romans 6, 3, and 4, when I think about the practice of baptism, I go, Romans 6, 3 through 4, I feel like maximizes the picture of adult baptism in the sense of when a person comes, professes faith in Jesus, they're submerged under the water just as they've been buried with Christ, and they get up from the water just as their life has been raised. And so that picture, I feel like, fully maximizes the understanding of believer's baptism because we don't take eight-day-old babies and dunk them under the water and bring them up. And so that's where infant baptism, for me, loses some of that understanding in that text. Now, there's lots of other texts, and we'll get to those, but it's a symbol It's a symbol of of Christ's burial and resurrection. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. The old life is dead. Now, you ask me, and I tell this to every person who comes forward and gets baptized, I said this to my kids, hey, when you come out of the water, are you done with sin? Are Are you still going to sin? And the answer is yes. All of us are going to sin, but our relationship with sin is now different. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've used this illustration before, tells an example of a field that's owned by a landowner, and that landowner is Satan. And Satan is over you, and, and you're over that land, and you're responsible for that land, and you just get bossed around. Like, he's making the orders, and you just do whatever he says. And what happens when we are spiritually renewed and given new life in Christ is, is that we're taken from that field and we're put up in a new field. And in this new field, I I know that's the Texas, some of you are like, what's a field? You know, that's the Texas way of saying it. Field, there we go. Got to really focus on saying it. We're we're put in in a new field and a giant wall is built. And, and yet we still hear the voice of our old master yelling at us across the fence to get to work. We got stuff to do. And he's yelling at us, and it's tempting in many ways to go back. But he's no longer over us. We're no longer his slave. We've been set free. There is a new relationship to sin. And so the old life is dead. You are dead to your old way of living. And we've been raised to live a new life. Not only is that, it's identification with Jesus. Not only is it a symbol, but it's we're given this identity that we are baptized into Christ, that we take on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we are buried with him, and we are raised with him. It is an identification that we are now in Jesus, and it is that very identification 
that caused many people to experience persecution. That people identifying themselves that, yes, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is true, and I want that to be true about my life, that Jesus died for my sins in my place. Jesus died for me, set me free, gave me a new life, and my life is now to him. And those who want to declare that, who make that declaration, were ultimately setting themselves up for persecution. It was basically a death sentence. I remember being at our previous church and someone of, of another upbringing in faith came to us and said, for me to be baptized in the Christian church is ultimately to cut off myself from my family, from my friends, from many relationships. It's a, it's a sacrifice, but it's, it's, it's so essential that there was an identification with Jesus. Jesus himself was cut off. It's an identification. It's a picture of cleansing. We already talked about this idea of it's symbolic of cleansing. It does nothing to the removal of sins. Water, we don't come out any cleaner. Typically, our water is filthy. I, I don't know if you saw it last time we baptized. There was, it was like brown things floating. Like It was a little, it's, it's embarrassing. I'm like, you know, we joked with some of the kids like, dude, you were super sinful, right? Like, you're so dirty. Look at the water. You turn the water brown. But it's a joke in the sense of like, this water does nothing towards our sinful nature. It's a picture. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. We covered this passage when we were walking through 1 Peter recently. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Well, that's interesting. I thought you said it doesn't save you. Well, help me understand. And this is where he really, he says, in case there's a misinterpretation, let me spell this out for you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. What you're doing in baptism is you're confessing your need. The same is true in infant baptism. The same is true in adult baptism. All of us are needy before God. We come appealing to God to save us. We come recognizing our sinfulness and knowing that we need a Savior to set us free. It's identification into the family of God and covenant community, and this is where it gets tricky. We, we talk about infant baptism, that there was a picture which I think is beautiful, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to discover, and the way it's practiced in many Baptist churches is they do parent dedication or baby dedication or child dedication, but in reality, there's less biblical evidence for parent dedication, baby dedication, child dedication than there is infant baptism. But yet we practice it. And, and that's where, again, we got to wrestle with this, but there's a picture of when a child enters into a family of believing parents, which I look around at our church family here, and we're a growing church, not just because there's guests that are coming, but because you guys are reproducing, all right? And, and there's, there's more children coming into this family, and what a blessing and what a picture that is of going, what it looks like to be raised by godly, God-fearing, Bible-believing parents, that they raise, they're, they're raised in a home where Jesus and the good news of the Bible is taught. And that as they grow up into that community, that we would recognize that they are our family. 
And it's not when they become of this point, and that's where I really struggle with this idea of coming into the family of God until they're baptized. So, for instance, my boys were baptized at Easter. But yet they've been a part of our family. They've been a part of, many of you have participated in discipling them within kids ministry. Many of you who've been to our home have discipled them around our dinner table. Many of you are participating in that community, in the family of God with them. But yet baptism is a picture of that. And so we got to decide if whether or not, are they in as an infant? Are they in when they're baptized? And which is very interesting because if you look at Romans chapter 9, you can just write that down. You go back and read Romans chapter 9, and it's the same dilemma I'm describing right here. They're talking about the fact that there are some who are with us, and and eventually they've been cut off. Eventually, like the tree must be pruned. In some ways, they, they were a part of our covenant community, but they're not a part of the new covenant family, meaning they, they have been circumcised from birth. There has been a setting apart of them in the covenant community, but there hasn't been circumcision of heart yet. And this is what Romans 9 describes. So it's identification into the family. That's true. We just got to decide when. Lastly, it's our way of participating in the mission of God. Here in Salt Lake City, Utah, we live in a missional context. Whether you're here today and, and, and you come from many different upbringings or backgrounds or faith beliefs, statistically, evangelical Christian is less than 2% in our city. Now, you're here and you're like, well, we, we've grown up in, in a certain context or we've grown up in a certain understanding. The, what the Bible teaches and what statistically we've held to is it's 2% evangelical, which means there are many people in the city that we still are called to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus to you. That we want to see multiple people be baptized. And one way that we participate in the mission of God in, in obedience to Matthew 28 is that we would go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the, G, in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, we would be faithful in doing that. These are the purposes of baptism. Now, people, we, we've talked about this in and out. I won't spend much time here. When we talk about who may participate in baptism as a biblical rhythm of church life, again, we've already posed, there's lots of questions, there's lots of differences of belief when it comes to that. But let me say this out of the gates. Infant baptism, as I described, now, there are some faith traditions, Catholic being one of those. I grew up understanding that what happened to me when I was eight days old in the Catholic church was to take care of original sin. If you're here and you're like, what in the world's original sin? The Bible tells us that all sin has been passed down from Adam into us. So we're an offspring of Adam throughout generations. His sin has infected us. We are all born with a sin nature. And so children being born are sinful at birth. And you're like, well, 
Really? I'm like, have you ever spent any time around a kid? Yeah. And, and in many ways, it's the Catholic Church believe that we must do something with original sin, and so we are going to impart baptism in a way to deal with original sin and to see salvation influence that child's life. The Bible does not teach that. I'll move on. I won't spend belabor the point much longer than that. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible, again, teaches that there must be a personal profession of faith in the life of a person for it to be saving. So, should baptism precede faith in Jesus or should it follow faith in Jesus? Okay, let me give the case for preceding faith in Jesus. Again, if we go back, brief history, Genesis chapter 15, covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17 is a sign of that covenant. One would be circumcised. It was not just meant to be a physical thing, but there would be circumcision of heart that would follow it. So those who believe, particularly our Reformed brothers, our Presbyterian brothers, who believe in infant baptism, many of us would just reject that and be like, no way. A person needs to make a, profers- a, profession- a personal profession of faith. And they would say, absolutely. And that would follow baptism is what they would believe. And so circumc- circumcision was, was not meant to just be a physical thing, but they would be a spiritual thing. They would be a part of a covenant community. They believe that there is a continuation of the Old Testament into the New We see that Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12 ties together the idea of circumcision and baptism. And so that's where we see that continuation. The other thing that we would see is that nowhere in the New Testament do we see that now children are excluded from the covenant community, where in the Old Testament they were included in the the New Testament community. We don't see that in the New Testament. We don't see that, hey, now children don't receive the blessing of their parents. In fact, in Acts 2.38, it says that it's going to pass down from generation to generation, from children to children. We see a continuation of that. We also, everything in the New Testament that was fulfilled was a, a, a sense of lesser to greater. For instance, everything that we see in the Old Testament, the exclusion from the covenant family, we see in the New Testament that it's more inclusive, that it's inviting more people, that it's not just Israelites who can come into the covenant community, but now it's all people, all nations, and so it's more inclusive, so why would it exclude children? We see all the passages of Scripture where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. We see Jesus' heart for children and value for children. We understand that for, uh, for a brief period, so if you, you look back at church history, for the first, we read all throughout the New Testament, right? The, this picture of, and we're going we're to hit these verses here in a second for those of you who believers baptism and like, hey, be fair. I'm going to do that here in just a second. For those of you who look back and you go, well, every pattern and rhythm I see throughout the New Testament is repent and be baptized. They believed and were baptized. Baptized always followed that. Yes, but they were in a missional context, which meant they didn't have believing parents, that they're going into a context that faith has not already existed. And so there wouldn't be believing parents. There wouldn't be this idea of infant baptism, but it would resurface again 
within the first two centuries. And it would continue as the normal practice in church history until the 16th century. So from the 2nd century to the 16th century, infant baptism was practiced exclusively. The Anabaptists were the people in the 16th century was like, hey, hold on a second. What about believer's baptism? And you know what happened to the Anabaptists? They're like, well, you want to be immersed? You want to be dunked? We'll hold you under. And they basically killed them. They said, if you want to believe in, in, in that type of baptism, we'll, we'll let you participate in that. And they held them under the water and they drowned them until they died. And this was how baptism was brought about. And we're like, man, what a crazy past. And you're like, yeah, we got to make sense of this, right? If we look back, all, all the reformers, when we look back at John Calvin and Martin Luther and Aldrich Zwingli that we talked about last week, we see that all of them believed in infant baptism. And it wasn't until 16th century that believers' baptism, repent and be baptized, believe and be baptized, would be main the common practice. So there's the case in, in, in a brief snapshot of, of, of what our tension is, who should be baptized. But if we were to make sense and when we were to look at the New Testament and we go, what does the New Testament describe? The New Testament describes people believing and be baptized. And they're in a missional context. They're in a place in which no one knows the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is spreading across the city. And it's changing people. And people want to identify with Jesus. They want to see their own life buried and raised again in new life. They want the new life that Jesus comes to offer. And because of that, they symbolize that through baptism. And we read all throughout the, the New Testament that people believed. Acts 2.41, those who believed and accepted his message were baptized. Okay, so belief preceded it. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Simon himself believed and was baptized, Acts 8.13. But what about, where, where does this picture of infant baptism come back in? Well, there's several references of whole households being baptized. We read the story in Acts 2.39, For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone from whom the Lord God calls to himself. Acts 16.15, And after she was baptized, and her household as well. But then we got text that says, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized. Well, what do we do with this? And here's what I would say. I don't know. And, and, and my question is, is, can we be a church that, that practices both faithfully? And that's one position that some hold to. Can we, can we see some who have a conviction and, and a sense in which people come in and they want that child, they want the covenant community blessings and promises of God to be made real? Now, just because you baptize that infant doesn't mean those things will come. Because again, it requires a circumcision of the heart. Or should it be one that follows faith in Jesus? And that's what we get to continue to wrestle as a church. I'd love to give you a clear answer, 
but there are wise people, people that you respect, people that you read on a regular basis that hold difference of opinion. So what should be our posture? And I'll close with this. How does one participate in baptism as the biblical rhythm of church life? Here's what I would say. In all of this, in all of this discussion, I know I gave you a history lesson and we've walked through the whole narrative of circumcision and baptism this morning. The good news that Jesus offers us and the very sense that the fact that we have baptism is because God offers us a new life. God offers us a second chance. God offers us forgiveness and hope and meaning and significance and purpose. God offers us all we ever wanted and all we ever dreamed of. It sounds too good to be true, but I want you to hear me say it's real. The picture of baptism and what we get to celebrate in that moment is the power of God's transforming hand in the life of a person. And whether it precedes faith or it follows faith, we want every single person to experience God's transforming hand. So when I ask you what's the posture, it's a posture of rejoicing. When I look at the story in Acts chapter 8, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, and I'll summarize the story, but this Ethiopian eunuch goes and he travels to Jerusalem to worship. He goes to worship, and as Scripture tells us in Deuteronomy, that one who's a eunuch has not only cut himself, but he's been cut off from society. He's made sacrifices to serve in a role. What he did to honor the queen of Ethiopia was, I'm going to cut myself off. It's not about family. It's not about my masculinity. It's not about my manhood. It's about service to you. And I want to show that I'm committed to you. But yet he goes to worship in the temple And it's not allowed. And it says in Acts chapter 8 that he's returning home. And he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And a man named Philip is sent out into the desert and said, hey, go. There's basically a man who needs you. And Philip goes out and he overhears someone reading the book of Isaiah and recognizes that. And Philip goes, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how, how can I? How can I? And it says that Philip then began to share the good news of Jesus. What was his response? There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And it says, they went into the water, he comes out, and he leaves rejoicing. 
Is he rejoicing over the fact that he got in the water? Is he rejoicing that he just cooled off in the midst of a desert? Maybe. That's probably a good side benefit. He's rejoicing over the hope that this God that he was cut off from has now drawn near to him. That in the way of of this idea of circumcision, that, that God would come and would circumcise his heart, would change his life, his identity, his significance, his purpose forever. And what God offers us in the gift of baptism is, one, as the church, that we get to witness that life transformation. Because it is a personal thing. We see this inward decision, this cognitive understanding and belief to follow Jesus, and yet people decide to make it public. And what that does for all of us is it reminds us of the good news of the gospel. So hear me. If you're here this morning, and you don't know the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is that all of us, because of our sin, have been separated from God. Our sin nature, our sinfulness, the wages of that is death, which means you get paid death for your sins. But Jesus Christ, in his love for you and desire for relationship with you, took on your sin, took your punishment, took your suffering on himself so that you would receive forgiveness. Every person in this room needs a Savior, and Jesus Christ is him. Jesus Christ has not separated himself from you, but he has drawn near to you. He loves you. And more importantly than anything else, he wants you to be his child and gives you this morning an invitation to know him. And what we celebrate in baptism is that through knowing him, our life has changed. Through his grace, our life is transformed and we walk in newness of life. That's what's essential about baptism and that's what I believe God would have me share with you today. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins, If you've never identified with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he invites you. He invites some of you to be baptized as a profession of that. Lord, I pray for our room this morning that we would be celebratory in the good news of Jesus that is offered to each of us, the invitation that's offered to each of us this morning. That Jesus, you have included us. No matter our religious upbringing, no matter who our dad was, no matter what our faith belief was, no matter what 
how much money we have in our pocket, no much, how much sin we've accrued over a course of years. Lord, you offer us a fresh start if we'll just come to you. And so, Lord, I pray for those in this room who have never reached out and asked you for forgiveness that right now, in the best words that they know how, that they would just cry out their need for Jesus. Lord, we need you. We need a Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.